How many of you in here like enjoy fishing? Like I love to go fishing. Or you got a oh, quite a few of you like to go fishing. Very good. I I use I haven't fished in years. And every year I kind of enter into New Year's, like, you know what I like to do? I like to pick up fishing again. I remember, like, when I was younger, as is my personality, I, like, get really into something for a little period of time. And I remember the stage of my life when I was totally into fishing. Like, I would get a Field and Stream magazine and read through all of that and watch the fishing shows on Saturday morning. And I loved going to the store and buying lures and tackle and cleaning it all up and getting in my backyard and casting uh, the rod and reel. And, like, I just, ooh, it's like every, like, even the, I think, you know what? This year I'd like to go fishing again. But here's what I do remember. I enjoyed lure fishing a whole lot more than I did bobber fishing. And so I love when you kind of put the lure, and then and here's the reason why. I know this about myself and my personality. The reason why is because with lure fishing, you're always moving. You're always doing something. You cast it out. You reel it in. You cast it out. You reel it in. You get all the junk that you've collected from the pond and lake and not fish, but you pull it off. You cast it out. Like What I didn't like so much was bobber fishing. And if you don't know what that is, that's where you kind of you put the bait on the hook, give it a little bit of string. You put a bobber on, on the string. You cast it out, and then you do what? You sit and wait, which I'm not good at at all. I'm too impatient. I recognize that very early on with the bobber fishing, you had to have the ability to just be patient. You had to have the ability to just sit and wait, and I never did. So as soon as the bobber hit the water, man, I mean, if there were any waves at all in that lake or pond that moved that bobber, what'd you do? <laughs> Try to set the hook, and what's there? Nothing, and that comes flying out of the right you lose your bait and you got to rebait it again. You throw it back out. And there's a timing to it that you have to discern. And so even if I could tell, I think that's really a fish. There's really a fish by the bait. Like I just didn't have the, there's a timing where, right, the fish has got to grab the hook, bring it under, and then you set the hook at just the right moment. And then voila, you got a fish. And I could never get that because it's just any time it moved, I just wanted to yank it right out. And what I discovered is in bobber fishing, it takes the ability to have patience and to wait and to discern when is the right time. When I think about that, in my mind, I think maybe that's why when Jesus chose disciples to follow after him, he bypassed all of the religious leaders and all of the scholars and all of those who were born by some sort of noble birth, people that truly, if I were the Messiah, I would rather choose them because it would make me look better. And Jesus bypassed all of them, and he went right for people who worked with their hands. He chose rather a bunch of fishermen. And when I think about that, I can't help but wonder if he chose them because he knew as fishermen they would have the qualifications for what was to come. They had the ability to wait And Jesus knew that the road ahead of them, even following after him, would we require a time where they're able just to sit and wait for the right moment, even if they had been sitting for hours with nothing happening at all in their nets. In fact, it is fishermen who know how to go out all day and still come home completely empty-handed and yet wake up the next morning and try it all over again. It's sort of like being a Cubs fan, right? Which, if I can make a point here, because I'm a huge Cubs fan, I'll just make a point here. You know, tonight's opening night for the Cubs, right? We play the Cardinals. My wife's from St. Louis, so this will be a rough night for us. We'll probably be sleeping in separate rooms. But anyhow, um, it is Easter where we celebrate that which is dead, has come to life, and it's the opening day for the Cubs. I'm just saying, I just, it, could be, it could be a good year. This is because, now listen, let's go back to the disciples, because... The stages of life that you are now living, like even if you gave your life to Jesus, 
will require that you pass through one of the most holy stages and redemptive stages that there is. And it's simply waiting. In fact, the joy and celebration of today, of Easter, really only makes sense if you understand what happens before it. And and you know from our story, and even if you were here on Friday at noon for our Good Friday service, that we reenacted that Friday is a day of complete devastation. I mean, every hope, every dream, every desire and anticipation of what was going to happen is completely demolished and destroyed in that moment. And I can't help but imagine all of those disciples there present still had some sort of hope even going through the process. They saw the brutal beating and the flogging and the public trial and even the actual beginning of the crucifixion. I can't help but imagine, though, that their heart and their eyes were just scanning the horizon that maybe God will show up yet. That maybe, as bad as it looks right now, that he will intervene and bring this whole thing to an end because you believe that the man on that cross is the Messiah. And in Jewish theology, the Messiah does not die. Like, the end of the story in Jewish theology to the Messiah is not that he dies on a cross. The theology for the Jews is, no, no, when the Messiah shows up, that means that all of God's enemies are finally going to be destroyed, that we'll finally, got to li- we'll finally get to live in independence and prosperity just as we were intended to be. And so you're anxiously praying and hoping that you haven't just wasted three years of your life following a guy who in the end goes out like a common criminal. And then... He dies. Like dead, dead. Like even though your eyes and heart were scanning the horizon that maybe God will show up, in the end what you recognize is he didn't. He actually died. And and if you had any doubt that maybe he was faking this whole thing, that Roman soldier that showed up with a spear and then pierced the side of Jesus where blood and water poured out let you know that, oh no, it's over. And then you sit You can only imagine the pain and the devastation. I mean, forget for just a moment that everything you pictured for yourself in relation to that man is now over, but there's no movement. There's no revolution. There's no Messiah. Like, he's gone. And you get pretty close to someone that you hang out with, especially if you're a disciple for three years. Because in that three years, you learn everything about their life. I mean, their teachings, their thoughts, their mannerisms, how they spoke. You said that that guy was, in fact, your Lord and Master, and now that guy is dead. And perhaps the most tragic part of Friday is at the end of the day, humans will take down and carry God to a tomb. Now, think about the theological implications of that for just a moment. Humans will take the dead body of God They'll anoint it with some spices and prepare it for burial. They'll take strips of linen and they'll wrap the dead body of God and then they will carry it to a tomb and seal the tomb. And in that moment, it looks dark and it is bleak and it is bad. And we often talk about God carrying us in moments of life. Oh, it's so hard. God God carried me along the way. But I think if we were honest... There really are days when we carry God. There are days when it's so dark, it feels like we are carrying the dead body of God to a tomb. A.J. Swoboda wrote an article called The Glorious Dark, and he said, actually, this is the unique, unique thing about Christianity. 
only Christianity insists that a legitimate stage of holiness is hopelessness. The story of resurrection begins with a story of carrying God to the tomb. And I say that just to affirm that, listen, I know that as we turn into Sunday here, that, ooh, Easter, yay, that there might still be those who, it feels still like it's not Sunday, who are still walking in great doubt or hopelessness or devastation or pain or grief and sadness. And if that's the case, I just want you to know, you have not missed any stage of holiness. You have carried God to the tomb, and now you sit. And in fact, what's interesting is, you know, we talk about Good Friday, and then we jump right over to Sunday, being, ooh, resurrection. But you know what comes in between? Saturday. And nobody talks about Saturday. Because you know what happens on Saturday? Nothing. You just sit, and you wait. You're not even sure what you're waiting for. But I imagine that Saturday has to be excruciating. Stunned and silent, you sit and wait for what? Who knows? But there you are. You begin, well, maybe we should just get back into our boats and maybe go fish again, or maybe we should binge watch on Netflix because that will pass the time. And, or, or maybe you just think maybe we should go to the tomb and grieve there, cry there. I don't know. Just contemplate all the stuff that's happened. And in fact, that's what at least some of the women decided to do. Like, I don't want to just sit here doing nothing. Let's at least go back to Jesus' tomb and maybe we could take care of the body and kind of think and cry and grieve. And So here's what it says happens in John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, could you imagine Mary's heart starting to, like, the pace of it starting to quicken, her heart starting to beat out of her chest. Because at first sight, she recognizes this is not normal. Something's wrong here. Because the last we left, that stone was in place, and now it's rolled back. So she ran, and she went to get Simon Peter, and it says here in the Gospel of John, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and I like this in verse 4. It turns into a race. It says, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I think the other disciple is John who's writing the story, and right now he's bragging that he's faster than Peter, which I would too if I were writing the story. But he does let us know in verse 5 he doesn't actually go into the tomb. He bends over and he looks in, and he sees the strips of linen lying there, and then verse 6, it says that Peter, who was slower, he finally gets there behind him, and he goes straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, but it was separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he decided to also go inside. And then it says he saw and he believed. Now, real quickly, when it says he believed, that doesn't mean oh, Jesus is alive and he's raised from the dead. What that means is he believed Mary's story. He believed that, oh, you're right, Jesus' body isn't here. It says next in verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And what's interesting here is resurrection never comes to their mind. Like, at no point do they think, oh, Jesus' body is gone. Ooh, maybe this is that kind of growing excitement, maybe. No, no, he's dead, dead. They saw the whole thing. 
Their only problem is they think somebody stole his body and they put it somewhere else. In fact, that's what Mary says. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. The reason they don't believe he is alive, in spite of the fact that Jesus even taught that he would rise again, is because people don't just rise from the dead and they carried his body to the tomb. He was dead. Dead, dead. Then it says in verse 10, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Which you can imagine, right? Who knows what they're doing to the body of Jesus? She loves this man. What indignity it might be suffering right now. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And when she did, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Which, now there's a very legitimate answer to this question. And this is what she says. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, isn't that sweet? Like, that's what she cried. I don't know where they put Jesus. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she did not realize that it was Jesus, which I think is interesting, right? Like, I don't know about the post-resurrection body of Jesus, but Mary doesn't recognize it's Jesus. And so he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking that he was the gardener because Jesus was wearing one of those work shirts with his name on it, Jesus, and she didn't recognize him. (laughs) Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you put him and I'll, I'll get him. Isn't that sweet of Mary? Like, I don't, maybe she's like, Mary's tough, but I mean, She's going to pick up the dead body of Jesus herself and carry it back to the tomb that he belongs in. That's how much she loves this man. I'll take care of it myself if you'll just tell me where, where he is. And then look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now this is my favorite part of the story here in verse 16. Mary, for whatever reason, doesn't recognize Jesus. He has just asked her who she is looking for, and Mary so sweetly says, if you'll just tell me where he's at, I'll I'll go get him. Mary is ready to carry the dead body of Jesus again, anywhere, if you'll just give him back to me. Don't cause me any more suffering to imagine what might be happening to him. And then all Jesus does is he calls her by name, Mary. And in that moment, she hears her name on the lips of Jesus. And when she hears her name on the lips of Jesus, she immediately knows it's Jesus. There's something about hearing his voice speak her name, Mary. And I pray that if, by chance, you are, even this morning, in the midst of hopelessness or despair or confusion, or sadness, or loneliness, or fear, that this morning you will hear him simply call your name. That this is the moment when Saturday turns into Sunday, and light breaks into the darkness and despair. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And so it goes on and says in verse 17, now, he's, he still has a mission in front of him, and so he's very attentive to that. And, of course, Mary wants to hang on to Jesus and hug him as, you know, he's alive. Like, and so he says this verse 17, Now, don't hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go instead to my brothers, meaning the other disciples, and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had, what he had said, these things to her. Now, you've got to imagine, I can't, I'd love to hear their response, right? I saw Jesus. He's alive. What? You know, come on, Mary. Like, what, what's Mary... Verse 19, on the evening of that first, this was that evening time of the week, when the disciples were all together and the doors were locked, like they're locked shut because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came in and stood among them, which, listen, like if you could do this in the post-resurrection body, I'm so looking forward to this. Like I'm just going to pass right through locked doors. Hello, everybody. Like, like, so Jesus shows up out of nowhere and he has to say, don't freak out. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you is what he says. And after he said this, he went ahead and showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed. Now, could you imagine the flip of emotion? Like, we're talking despair and hopelessness and complete devastation. All of a sudden, in this moment, flipping on its head, and now they're overjoyed because they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus will say, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, listen, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they'll be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, as a sidebar, one of the disciples wasn't present. Like, Thomas wasn't even around. And who knows, maybe Thomas is off, you know, like, I don't know, fishing again, or just he can't handle being with anybody else right now in his grief. And so he wasn't there. And it tells us a little bit later, verse 24, Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples tried to tell him, listen, we've seen the Lord. But it just seems ridiculous. Like, we, I, he was dead. I saw him. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, a whole week transpires. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas this time was with them. And through the doors, though they were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, once again, peace be with you. And then he looks right at Thomas, and he says, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him after this, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, You know, blessed, because you have seen me, you have believed. But listen, listen, listen. blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. That's for us. Like that right there, that's. That's for everybody who gathered at 10.30 in the morning today at 718 East Dummer Avenue here at the Living Stones Church. Those of us, we didn't really get to see his hands. We didn't really get to see his side. And Jesus says to Thomas, that's great. I'm glad you believe. But blessed are those who didn't see, and yet they believe. John will go on and say, listen, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the idea of resurrection predates Jesus. It isn't like Jesus comes back to life and they have no idea what this looks like or means or like no concept of it. The Jews believed in a resurrection. But here was the thing. 
the resurrection of the dead would happen on the day of the Lord. What that meant was there's one day God's going to finally break into history and He's going to finally right everything that is wrong. Everything that is broken, God is going to fix. He's going to turn it out exactly as He intended from the very beginning. This is the great day of the Lord, and all of God's enemies are finally going to be vanquished. Anytime there is injustice, God is going to break in and bring about justice. If there's poverty, He'll bring about prosperity. That's what happens on the great day of the Lord. And so you can imagine when the disciples went out and said, No, listen, Jesus was raised from the dead. Their response has to be, Oh, really? He's back from the dead? Like resurrection took place? Well, look around. Does it look like there's no more injustice? Well, no. Does it look like there's no more poverty? No, I recognize that there's more poverty. I mean, does it look like there's no more pain? Does it look like we're finally free and independent? Yet all of that for the disciples didn't matter because they were empowered by this reality that they could not deny, and that is we actually saw Jesus was dead, dead, and now he's alive. And for them, the resurrection was just the beginning of what broke into the face of the earth and was going to come. And as you look around, I know it might still appear to be Saturday to you, and it might feel hopeless and dark, and you might be overwhelmed with despair, and you might be in a boat, and all you know to do is to wait. But Jesus' resurrection is a promise to us that, no, listen, whatever you're going through, there's a light at the end of this tunnel. That your time in waiting and in darkness and despair is about up. And this becomes the central point of the gospel message. Every time then, when you get to the book of Acts that one of the apostles gets up and tries to tell their story, it hinges on and it is the pinnacle of he's now alive. That's why we'll say in Acts chapter 1 verse 21, therefore, listen, Judas had just killed himself. So they got, re- they got 11 apostles, they need 12 again, they need to replace them. It says, therefore it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. I mean, going all the way back to when John the Baptist baptized him to the time of his ascension when he was taken up from us, and one of these must become a witness with us of what? His resurrection. No, we saw it with our own eyes, he was alive. Or on the day of Pentecost when Thousands of people respond to that first message that Peter gave. What was his message? It hinged on the resurrection. Verse 29 of Acts 2, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, who we all love, but David died and was buried. In fact, his tomb is still with us to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what was to come. He even spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has risen this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out, on, poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. In fact, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, because of the resurrection here, this is why. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It is the resurrection that they continue to proclaim. When you get to Acts chapter 4, there's a guy out begging, and he can't walk. He's crippled, and the apostles just heal him in the name of Jesus. And so the leaders get the, the, the apostles together, like, how could you do this? Why could you do this? Chapter 4, verse 1 says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And then later in this chapter, verse 8, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
Listen, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how, it, how he was healed, then you should know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but listen, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He'll go on and say in verse 33, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Or if you flip to the next chapter in chapter 5, and listen, you can go through the whole book of Acts and just note how many times the resurrection is a central message. I'll, I'll leave this last one here. Acts 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, Listen, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross, and God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So even now, has everything been made perfect? No. No, it hasn't. Are there still injustices? Yes. But here's what the early disciples knew, that the resurrection meant that he was, in fact, God and King. And the resurrection of Jesus guaranteed what was to come, our own resurrection. It will not be Saturday in your life for long. Whatever it is that you, has caused you despair or fear or worry or concern or devastation or trouble, I want you to hear me say this. It will not have the last word. I think I heard a train whistle and then I said, right? That was so well-timed. I just don't. Jesus will have the last word. Jesus gets the last word because he stared death in the face and he defeated it. And this is good news for every person who feels like you're just sitting in a boat and you're waiting. So you didn't get the word you were hoping to or wanted from the doctor. I have good news for you. Your doctor doesn't get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. Or that latest financial statement that came in that left you discouraged or worried or in depression or anxious about what lies before you and your options that don't look very good, I want you to know there is good news. That latest financial statement doesn't get the last word. Because of resurrection, Jesus gets the last word. Or listen, Mom and Dad, I know that you might be sitting here broken and hurting over your son's life choices. And at the moment you sit in a shadow of darkness and despair, I want you to know that there is a light at the end of your tunnel. The circumstances of your son will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word. Or maybe you're devastated by the end of a relationship that you counted on lasting until death do us part. And now waves of sadness and grief watch o- wash over you as you can't even see clearly into tomorrow, let alone next week. I want you to know there is good news. That brokenness will not get the last word. Jesus has been raised from the dead and thus he gets the last word. Or maybe you feel like so overwhelmed and hopeless because you were hoping to escape that addiction and you made all those sincere promises and all those efforts and all those meetings that you attended and yet you found yourself falling and failing once again, well, I want you to hear today that Jesus is alive. He came back from death and because of that, your addiction will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word. And that word is always life. 
In fact, it earns him a title. He gets called in the Gospels, I am the resurrection and the life. And so I pray today you will hear this morning from his own mouth your name. And in speaking it, that you'll know the power of resurrection and life. So what is the area in your life that's on life support right now? Or what area of your life feels like it is just dead, dead? Or what part of your life did you have to take down and carry to a tomb? What part of your life seems at this moment so hopeless? What I'd say to you today is speak into that area of your life, power that only comes from the name of the resurrection and life. Today is Easter. Let us remember, let us celebrate. Death in all of its manifestations will not win. Jesus wins. Jesus gets the last word.